I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word. Gave her a nice positive one to read this uh, Mother's Day, didn't we? Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we have together to set our eyes upon you. Thank you for our moms in this room. Um, thank you for the, the fact that you have worked through, uh, through mothers, through our families, to bring us all here today and into your presence, uh, into your world, into your kingdom. Father, I pray for, uh, for all of those in our church who just need your extra care and support this week, especially thinking of Jude Trang as she's got this procedure coming up that is concerning, that she is uh, just, yeah, that, that she's kind of concerned won't be easy. And so we pray that it would go smoothly, well, and uh, that she would come out of it um, with insight and that it would all, um, yeah, that it would end very, very well and to her benefit. Pray for their comfort as they go through that. And I pray for our time today that we would hear from your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a, a series on love. And you might go, what in the world uh, did that text have to do with love? Well, that's my, my job is to show you. So this is coming out of a letter um, by the Apostle Paul. I have to give a little context here. Sometimes we'll preach out of a book, like we'll kind of step by step through a book of the Bible. But lately on this, uh, in this series on love, we've been bouncing around. And so Paul, who we're hearing from now, wrote most of our New Testament. He is a highly unlikely Christian himself. He was opposed to Christianity to the point that he sought the death penalty for Christians. And you read about that in the history recorded in the book of Acts. His conversion to Christianity was dramatic and unique. It was really quite supernatural. There's not another one recorded quite like it. Um, and people had a hard time believing it was authentic. But as years went by, Paul proved to be a changed man. And he even suffered a lot out of his love for God and dedication to serving God's church. And by and large, all Christians have accepted that he had a genuine conversion and we teach the things that he taught to us because he was one of the people uniquely called by God to build the church. And he did. He built the church. He started a lot of churches like the church in a place called Corinth. Um, here's some of the ruins of Corinth. Corinth was a large Greek city, uh, about 100,000 people. It doesn't feel large to us, but at the time, that was, a, that was a very large and influential city. It was a diverse city. Uh, there were many ways of thinking, many faiths, and it was a complicated place to be a faithful Christian. So Paul would have started a church there and then wrote letters back to that church to address the complexity of following Jesus for people in a very secular city. And we're reading a small piece of one of those letters. Now, Paul's letters follow a pretty similar layout. 
Uh, often when you read one of Paul's letters, he'll start off by assuring them that they are Christians, of their place in God's church and of the power of God and God's grace in their lives. Then he'll apply correctives to them and then he'll reassure them at the end. That's often kind of how it goes. And uh, here uh, we're reading correctives. Now the correctives always flow out of this assumption that God is at work in their lives. They always flow out of a place of hope. So I'm gonna read you the beginning of the letter, um, the first part of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote to them, he said, Paul, my name is Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, that was his scribe, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those who are sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So essentially, Paul is saying, I believe that you are Christians. I believe that God has given you incredible grace and I believe God is going to carry you all the way to the end and you are going to be belonging to Jesus. So that's how he starts off his letter. He asserts this trust that he has in God for them. And then he addresses some of their issues. In this letter, he addresses divisions in the church and how those should not be. He addresses the difference between spiritual and natural wisdom. And then he addresses these sexual issues in the lives of people in his church. And he brings up one that's very specific and very serious. And it's about a man who is married or in a relationship with his father's wife, which is, yeah, complicated. I don't think he would have brought it up if this wasn't a longstanding and active issue. And it, and it was because the people of Corinth, according to him, seem very confused on how to deal with it. And if you think about Paul's day, they would have had to have sent a letter to Paul. He would have had to have received the letter, sent it back by a courier. This is all taking months uh, to happen, but he is reflecting on what they've told him. We don't have access to that, but what they've told him is that they were kind of proud that they had this guy in their church. And we could speculate about why that would be. They might be proud because they're, they're a place where they give God's grace to people. And they might've said, hey, like we are being gracious to him. We're being very accepting. And they might've been proud of that. We're not quite sure. But Paul says back to them that you should not be proud because this affects everyone in your church. In fact, not only should you not be proud, you should remove this person from your church. Now, this isn't just this knee-jerk response, like get him out, he's weird, or anything like that. This has been going on for a while. This isn't like a social media call-out. This is not an overreaction. This is Paul seriously saying, this is not going to be good. You need to take care of this. It's been going on for a long time. And he uses an, an analogy that was known in their day 
which was a little leaven leavens the whole lump, which is a way of saying sin spreads. And if you let it grow and fester in your midst, it spreads out to everybody and affects everybody. Now, that could sound a little bit like religious and archaic, right? Like, wow, like sin spreads, get rid of the sinner in your midst. So I just, I Googled something. I was like, I just Googled toxicity quotes. Um, and, and, you know, here's one I got. Toxic people will pollute everything around them. Don't hesitate, fumigate. That came up like right away on Google. And I thought, wow, that's more judgmental than Paul at first blush. In a way, like it's, I mean, that's like language of death. Like you fumigate things, you kill. Um, I think it's not archaic to say you should remove people from your midst. The question is why and how, right? So that's kind of the context of the letter that we're in. But if I were you and I saw this graphic come back up, I would go, so what in the world does this have to do with love? Um, this seems discombobulated. And, you know, I get it. So here's what I, sh- what I want to show you, because actually what I want to show you from this section is a very interesting and surprising thing that Paul taught in the midst of that whole line of thought. So he's in that whole line of thought about how you should take this guy out of the church because sin spreads. And then he kind of clarifies something here where he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, but then he, he goes, but hold on, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. He gives this clarifier, and I think that's really important, and that's what we're going to talk about mostly today. Here's what I hope to show you, that Christian love is radically open to everyone. Christian love is deeply involved in people's lives, and Christian love is, is powerfully relational, and I think we can see all of that in our text this evening. So, it is radically open to everyone. So, Paul the author of our letter knows this to be true himself. Let's just reflect again. I mentioned a little bit about Paul. Not only was Paul an outsider to following Jesus, he was against Jesus. Paul not only didn't like Christians, Paul was killing Christians. That is his life story. You read in Acts. And Paul was sought out by God in the, in the very midst of that activity and that lifestyle and God intervened in his life. It wasn't an easy transformation for him. He was blinded. He spent all kinds of time in disorientation. It was painful. It was a loss. He lost his job. He lost his friends. He lost his status in society. It was a very difficult transformation for him. But it was the work of God in his life while he was adamantly opposed to Jesus. Okay? Paul would later say that everything he had before he considered as rubbish compared to what God gave him in that moment. That's in Philippians 3. Um, He said in, in Philippians 3 that he was pressing into his faith because Jesus had made him his own. 
And that was the, the language there is not that Jesus invited me to belong to him. It was he made me his own. He took hold of my life and he changed me. Jesus brought him in, gave him acceptance and grace through a lot of pain. And that's what transformed Paul. We see this kind of story elsewhere in the Bible. Jesus was so involved in the lives of people that others weren't connecting to that he was accused of being a drunk. Did you know that? He actually hung out with sinful people so much, he was starting to be named for them. They would call him a drunkard and a sinner himself. Israel, who was God's people in the Old Testament, they were called to live distinctly among other nations in their midst. They weren't to become like them, but they were to be right around them living distinctly to the degree that people would convert in and accept their God because of what they observed. Paul, when he lived his life out after becoming a Christian to start his church in Corinth, think of what that would have taken. He walked into, into Corinth. He walked into a city where, where there are zero Christians and he had to develop relationships with unbelievers and close enough ones that they decided to change everything they believed about God entirely and to follow a new God coming from the Hebrew people that were not, that was not their, their background. And they were going to enter into a community of people who believed in that God and worshiped him. Like that's surprising. And Paul, to do this, was doing this as an act of following Jesus, following Jesus's example that he'd heard about how he went to these sinful people, but also following the example of how Jesus had shown up in his own life because he was, to Jesus, an enemy. And as Paul mimicked Jesus, people began to follow Paul. That's what I mean about Christian love being radically open to every, everyone. It doesn't wait for a person to be good or worthy at all. Jesus loves us and engages relationship with us, the Bible says, while we are sinners. That's when Jesus engages with us and meets us and starts working in our lives. And to follow Jesus is to engage with relationships, in relationships with people who are sinners. You can't introduce someone to Jesus unless you're in a trusting relationship with people who don't know Jesus. You, you can't. Paul knew this, Paul taught this, and it can really surprise us. And, and why does it surprise us? Well, many of us have also read things in the Bible that say you should come out from the worldly people and be separate. That you should have nothing to do with godless myths and ideologies. And we, we've heard that, and we've never drilled in and asked enough questions about how the examples of Jesus and the apostles inform and illuminate those statements. Now, nowhere does the Bible say that you should be so among people that you're mimicking them. It doesn't say that. It says we should have nothing to do with the ways of people who are outside the faith, but everything to do with the people. Okay? Paul here clarifies, um, I am not telling you to disassociate from 
even sexually, he, he, he lists some of the most grievous things. He, he makes a point. If you know a sexually immoral unbeliever, don't stop associating with them. If you know a greedy unbeliever, do not stop associating with them. If you know a swindling one, like they're literally trying to cheat you, don't get out of relationship with them. If you know an idol worshiping unbeliever who like actually has another God they worship, do not get out of relationship with them. Don't. That's what Paul's saying. And I love the irony of his reasoning because he says to get out of relationship with people in the world, you would have to leave the world. And he, you know, this is before spaceships. This is before Elon Musk was thinking about buying property on Mars, which he apparently is. It was before all, like, this was ridiculous talk. When he said you'd have to leave the world, people were like, ha, ha, ha. Like, he's joking. It's impossible. He's like, it's impossible. And it's not going to work. Okay. We're sent in the world to make disciples and disciple making begins before people are Christians. Now, maybe that, maybe that's a new thought before people are Christians. So, so I want to, I want to work that out. Did Jesus's disciples believe in Jesus when they started following Jesus? I mean, they believed he was a guy, right? They believed he was a teacher. I think they believed he was a compelling and wise person, but they would not have qualified for, members, for membership of this church. They could not have articulated what grace is. They could not have articulated how Jesus saves someone from their sins. They, they probably couldn't have been considered believers in Jesus. Jesus called them to walk with him and enter into deep relationship with them and they learned to trust him and learned his ways all the way up until, I mean, you see at his trial, they're running away. In the upper room, they, they aren't sure that, that they really believe that he can rise from the dead. I mean, these are people who weren't sure until Jesus finished the work and sent the Holy Spirit into their hearts. And then they were able to understand. So if we're going to obey the command of Jesus to make disciples, we're going to have to offer it to others, offer to others what God has given to us. We're going to have to learn to open ourselves to relationships and offer love. If I'm just following Paul to even sexually immoral, greedy, swindling, idol, worshiping, Christian mocking outsiders. And guess what? Most outsiders aren't like that at all. By the way, most non-Christians I know are not mocking, swindling, greedy, immoral people. In fact, I know a lot of Christians being a pastor and a lot of the outsiders are better than us. They are. Good Christian doctrine, by the way, teaches us this because what does it mean to be a Christian? To be morally superior? No. To be a Christian is to receive unmerited favor from God acceptance from God that you do not deserve to receive it. That means nobody's a Christian because they're moral, morally superior or personally superior. Christians simply know they're so broken, they could not stand in God's presence if Jesus hadn't died for them. And that knowledge should move us toward change, but it absolutely doesn't make us better. So we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter sweet unbelievers and very broken believers. 
we should expect a believer to listen to Jesus's call, but we should also expect unbelievers to be doing a lot of things Jesus has told us to do as well. Okay? So Christians should be open to relationships with unbelievers. Christian love is always open to sinners. Always. Then uh, Christian love is deeply involved. This is getting back to the part that offends folks in our context in this passage. That is, unless it reminds you of an experience you wish you'd been protected from, or unless you're kind of like high on the justice side of thinking. So there's, there's different types of people out there. There's people who are, who are high justice, and there's people out there who are high mercy. We all need each other. So if you're high justice, this might not bother you as much, or if you've been hurt or offended, um, this might not bother you as much. But generally in our, in our space, uh, in a place like Midtown Tucson, um, this text is like anathema, right? Like talking about, you know, judging and purging evil. Like what is, going, what is wrong with you, right? This is surprising. It can feel off-putting. Um, and you might say, shouldn't like a Christian community be a safe place to be? Like, shouldn't it, shouldn't it be where you don't get judged? Shouldn't it be where you're accepted and loved? So let's think this through. Um, first of all, by the way, in our culture, the idea of safe is, a, is an intro. There's a lot of debate going on around that idea. Like what is safe? Um, I've been hearing new language kind of in some of my like ministry circles that um, if, if you come into a meeting of leaders and you say, I want this to be a safe space, that's probably not ideal because what that means is you can't disagree with me. Um, and you can't, if I'm being a bully, you can't say anything because now I'm being unsafe to you. It just can kind of become a feedback loop. And so they're talking in terms like brave space. Like we need a brave space where we show up authentically and we, we show our warts and our wounds, but we care about each other and we really enter into relationship. Um, that, that's just a term that's being tried. The reason they're doing this is because anytime you're in a meaningful community where you're doing anything that matters, you're gonna have to be honest and vulnerable and you will fail. And, and that's a reality. And, that, and people aren't safe around other people. There's just no way. Basically being known and being willing to be authentic is what we need. And we need to know that we're loved. That's how we grow and become who we want to be. But being known is not easy and it's not without risk. And Christian love always includes being known. Let's consider this situation in Corinth. We don't entirely know what happened, but a guy in this church is in an inter intimate relationship with his father's wife, perhaps the dad is alive and this is polyamorous. Perhaps dad has died and the son was in love with his stepmother or his actual mother. We don't know. Happy Mother's Day um, as you think about these things, right? All the various scenarios that could be going on. But whatever the case is, not only did scripture say this is wrong, but Roman law, which compared to like the Hebrew scriptures would have been progressive, even Roman law forbid this practice. This, like, you can just think of, like, all of the outrageous social problems it would cause if you said, sure, date your parents. Like, there, how many things could go wrong, right? 
And even Roman law said, do not do this. You can't do this. You're going to get in trouble if you do this. So consider what it means that we're even having this discussion. This man's intimate life and story were known in his church. And this church probably, by the way, liked this guy a lot. Probably a ton. Why do I say that? Because you don't overlook illegal stuff when you don't like someone. If they hated this guy, and he, if they're like, this guy's a scumbag, he never donates to the church and he yells at people all the time, and he's doing something illegal, they'd be like, turn him in, right? But you don't do that when you like the guy, when you can kind of empathize with what he's going through. I don't know, we don't know the scenario, but somehow he was probably somebody who they liked. They were proud he was there. They wanted him to be a part of their community. Um, they knew the details of his life. They liked him. That's why involvement is so hard. That's why to talk about this with him is so difficult. But notice you have to read a little more of 1 Corinthians that the ultimate hope, even by Paul, is not that this guy would get in trouble, but that he would change. That's what they're hoping for. Even in the, one of the most difficult things that he, t that he teaches here, he's looking for repentance for this guy. And what does repentance mean? I've defined this for you all a number of times, but when you, repentance means you turn directions, you go a different way. So if I'm walking this way and I'm gonna repent, I walk this way. But as I always try to mention, you don't just change directions for no reason. Every time you're going a direction in life, you're going at a destination. There's a reason you're doing this. And if you want to change direction, you have to have a new destination. You have to decide you're going to pursue something else. And what Paul wants for this guy is that he would have a higher aim in his life than his own sexual fulfillment so that he could turn and change and live for Jesus. New destination, new behavior that falls or flows out of that. Even purging him from their midst, Paul explains earlier in 1 Corinthians, he said, deliver him to Satan, which is, you know, we're like, what? But deliver him to Satan so his flesh may be destroyed and his spirit be saved on the day of the Lord. He's even saying, this is basically, he's basically saying, this isn't going to go well for him. So allow him to hit rock bottom without like bailing him out so that he will wake up and get back on track and he will follow Jesus. And look, you don't have to be religious to know that this is how it works. Enabling people ultimately is destructive. Coddling someone can draw out a painful experience. That doesn't mean we should be impatient or quick tempered, but it means we shouldn't make destructive beliefs or behavior feel normative or okay or talk about them like they don't hurt others, right? That is not love. It's not love, but it's easier, right? It's easier to say, hey, you be you, or I won't judge, or it's not your fault. I know you've had a hard life, right? In the moment, it's way, way easier. It requires less work, a lot less heartache, but in the long run, it's hard on everybody. And I have to admit, this talk is for me 
because I don't love getting in the middle of people's stuff. It might be absolutely the lowest thing on my list to do. It probably is. But Christian love is deeply involved. Why? Because Jesus has become deeply involved with us. The good news of Christianity um, can be summed up this way, that we're more sinful than we'd ever dared admit, but more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we'd ever dared hope. See the two sides of that coin? Jesus didn't come to the world to coddle us. He's, he's clear with us about our issues, but he also sees and knows us and loves us deeply while we are still sinners. You could look at several situations in his life to see this at work in Jesus's life. His disciples, like I said, his disciples did not come to him with cleaned up lives. He worked with them through all kinds of issues that they had. You can see this with Peter cutting off the ear and James and John wanting to be first um, in his kingdom because they're, they're proud and they want the, the position. He's working through all kinds of stuff with them. And he doesn't say, hey, you know what? I like you guys, whatever you want, right? The woman at the well, he talks to her, shows her an incredible amount of mercy and dignity, but also like confronts her with the very things she doesn't want anyone to know. Zacchaeus, um, here's a guy who has defrauded all kinds of people and he's interested in Jesus and Jesus goes and he sits with him and all his sinner friends, but he also calls Zacchaeus to change. He loves people, but he asks them to change. And he enables their change by taking on their guilt himself, which is deeply costly and deeply, deeply involved. That's the Christian model, deeply involved. It's not a re relationship of just affiliation, like, hey, we're all Christians. We're members of this church. Cool. You're in the club. It's a relationship of transformation that God is doing something. He's at work in our lives and he is doing meaningful things that we get to be a part of. And that's complicated. But that's what's supposed to happen in Christ Christian community. But here's what often happens in religious circles, especially Christian communities. We judge outsiders and give a lot of leeway to one another. That's what the evangelical church, whatever that means, right, has become known for. We criticize the world. We point out its flaws and its issues, and we cover up for the highly committed. I've seen it. I've felt the pull to do it. And you can Google it, right? It's everywhere. It is. Why do we do this? Well, think about it. When a highly committed insider is doing or promoting the wrong thing, it is costly to deal with it. It is. When prominent people leave, it looks bad on everyone. And they usually don't leave like this. They don't usually blast out your, your back door and go, they were right. I steal things. I'm terrible. I hate them, but they're right. No, they normally don't. They usually leave going, they stink, they're the worst, they're, they're not full of grace, like they say. Um, <laughs> one of my uh, favorite confrontations we ever had at this church included a yellow Ford Pinto peeling out of the parking lot with the words, hypocritical Christians, being yelled at me and Nick. It was like, cool, that's what you want. 
Um, that's what you hear when you deal with things, right? You can. When prominent people are confronted with things, they often protest with their pocketbooks. I don't think this is just a new um, phenomenon. I'm sure it was true back then as well. When prominent people are confronted, they often gather a contingency of others to complain together and leave together. So you normally don't just lose a person, you lose a group. I've watched this happen in literally every church I've worked in, every single one of them. So you start feeling like maybe we just don't bring stuff up. Do you, are you hearing my confession? But what does it cost to criticize outsiders? It could be kind of hard. They might, you know, unfollow you on social media. Um, you know, they might, I don't know, tell a couple people in the community you stink. Um, but it usually costs a lot less. They don't leave. They weren't giving you money anyway. They were never a part of your community, so you don't feel that relational tear. It doesn't cost that much. In fact, it kind of has some payoffs. When you criticize outsiders, the inside group can feel very unified. And actually, when we feel kind of like martyrs, but we're together in that, the sense of connection is deep. Um, it can make insiders feel more righteous. When you look out at people who are very unrighteous, all of a sudden your sense of righteousness kind of lifts and it feels better. It feels a lot better. My friend Jim Mullins warns, and he's, I've been in a group of pastors that he warned about fake boldness. I mentioned it here before, but that's what you, when you boldly speak what everyone in the room is hoping you'll say about everyone who's not in the room. You know, like, I don't know, cat lovers. Let's just pick on them for a second. So we don't have to pick any actual group where I, you know, I go, we're all dog lovers in here, right? Those cat lovers, that's what's wrong with the world. You see what they do. They're prancing around, little tails, you know. <laughs> and all, everybody in here, see, you get it. You, you know dogs are better. And everybody in here is just like, yeah, 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 yeah. But if, I, but if we're a bunch of dog lovers... And I go, hey, you've seen the signs and the bags everywhere. They don't want that stuff in front of their house, but we are leaving it, people. I know, I know we are. It's happening. It's happening out there. Yeah, preach, <laughs> right? That's harder because we're dog people. That hits a little like, like here, like that's gonna make me change my behavior, right? You can imagine topics that are more important, can't you? Fake boldness speaks what everyone in the room agrees on about everybody else outside. Real boldness talks about what's going on in here. And that's actually love. Paul here is not doing fake boldness. He's saying, look at the plank in your own eyes, taking cues from Jesus, right? Uh, Jesus, if you're unfamiliar with the plank in the eye, here's a great illustration. Hey, bub, you got a little something in your eye there. And, uh, and you got this big board coming out of your eye. It's ridiculous. It's really, really weird to look at, right? Why? Because that's ridiculous. And, and that's what happens, by the way. Like when, when we criticize the world, like the world, 
watch the news and how they feel about us, and then fact check it and see if they're right. Usually they're right. So they're going, so you're going to give me a talk about self-righteousness? Really? You? They can see the big plank. And Jesus says, deal with the plank in your eye first, and then you might have a chance at helping the person that has the speck in their eye. He doesn't say don't help them. He just says, start with you. And that's what Paul's doing. He's starting with them. Now, I have to say, um, I, I've got I've to put this out here, right? That um, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Well, just a second here. Paul says, disassociate with the hypocritical per person in your church before you criticize the world. Disassociate with the hypocritical person in your church before you criticize the world. Do the hard thing for their good before you do the, the fake hard thing to people who aren't even listening to you, right? Now, we need to be careful because what do we mean by the hypocritical person? That's, that's where I want to give a little caution. Um, some of the messiest people in my experience in ministry repent actually more. What do I mean by that? Like, C.S. Lewis had, a, had an illustration of this where he talked about the perpetual drunk. And he talked about the perpetual drunk who is making progress, who is, they, they had this deep-seated problem and it was just like, it was like a lifelong pattern. But they kept getting up and fighting to follow Jesus and they made it a little progress, a little bit of progress, a little bit of progress. And then you've got the church-going man who God has been calling to not be so stingy for 30 years and they haven't moved an inch. Who is following Jesus, right? And often in our appraisal, stingy guy, because he shows up and he looks good and it's not really that offensive. So be careful with that. The hypocritical person isn't necessarily the one that looks the cleanest, the hypocritical person is the one who will not receive Christ's words and listen. And so when we, when there's a persistent hypocrisy, when you're involved in somebody's life and you're really like bringing something up and, talk, and they will not, and in fact, they, they start to look you in the eye and go, I don't want to do that. And I've heard those words. Don't associate with that. Don't. That's what Paul's saying. But do associate with sexually immoral people, greedy people, swindling people, even idolaters who don't claim to be Christians. They are not hypocrites. Jesus wants to invite them in. Don't break relationship with them. Do the hard work in here. Finally, Christian love is powerfully relational. Um, the order of events in the Christian life is extremely important. It's unique and important. And so you've probably heard me say this before if you go here, but you're going to hear it 30 more times before you're done going to this church. Um, this is how the Bible frames it from beginning to end. Obedience is a response to the love of God in that order. Love, then obedience. This, this is, uh, okay, Adam and Eve in the garden. We tend to think about that. 
Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave them a rule. They broke it. They blew it. But is that where the relationship began? The whole garden story, it didn't begin with that. These are people who'd been given life and breath and a creation and relationship with God. They'd been given everything, nothing that they earned, nothing that they worked for, nothing that they obeyed to get. And then they were told, here's what to do to stay in a loving relationship with God. Here, trust him, respond out of the grace that he's given to you, okay? Um, what about the famous 10 commandments, the laws of God? They're summed up in love God and, and love your neighbor, right? What about those? Did God give those to Israel as a gateway to relationship with him? No. In fact, he had delivered them from their oppression in some of the most amazing ways. He had shown up for them. He had parted the Red Sea. This is unbelievable stuff. He had proved his love to them, given them his very presence. He was present with them in the cloud and in the fire. And then he delivered them his law to show them how they could please him. And that's why the summary of the law is always based on love, love God. Even Deuteronomy 6, part of the Old Testament law starts off this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Disobedience is simply the flip side of that when you're not loving God. And even Jesus in John 14 said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It always starts with love. And of course, Jesus came and it became even more relationally powerful because now we got to see and experience God in the flesh. And guess what? Paul said it this way to the church in Rome. He said this, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says it again. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The typical religious equation is this, do what's right, get on the right path, and you'll find your way to God, enlightenment, or eternity. The Christian equation is utterly unique. It's because God has loved us and found us. Because Jesus has walked the right path in our place, we receive what we never could have earned and we get to live out of it. It's completely flipped on its head. And then because we're living out of being loved, we're transformed into being more like Jesus through relationship with Jesus and our fellow disciples. That's how Jesus remains with us in the flesh, by the way. His spirit is in each one of us. And when we're present for one another, God's spirit is active through us in one another's lives. The Christian religion is utterly unique, but it shouldn't be surprising. It's reasonable, really. It's the only way things work. The other religions flip it. People always change most effectively in loving relationships, not coddling ones, not enabling ones, but loving ones. You know, there's a lot of NBA on right now. How many great sports stars have you ever heard say, you know, the coach just kind of lets me do what I want and they don't really ever challenge my issues. What a coach. They've really changed my life, right? Or how many children grow up and say, you know, my parents just kind of asked me what I wanted to do and I did it. They never really questioned my motivations. I love my parents. Thanks, guys. Right? 
How many intellectuals say, my teacher really never challenged my thinking? I'm really glad I spent $50,000 on that student education, you know? That was great. No, it's always the opposite. We love the teacher who challenges us, who makes us work. We love the parent who like cares enough to do the hard thing when we look back on it years later. We love the coach that like pushes us to be what they know we can be even when we don't want to do it. But also any of those challenging situations without love can be damaging. The coach that yells and cuts me from the team, the parent with high expectations that'll make you pay, the hard teacher who loves to put people down, those are the stories of just utter destruction that follow somebody their whole life. It's always both, but it always starts with love. Love is criti critical. Love motivates great coaching, parenting, teaching, supervising. It begins with love and grace. Why is that? I read a book called Grit by a psychologist and, and she discovered after a lot, of, uh, a lot of hard work that people who persevere best know that they are loved and that are given pathways and standards to help them love others and do good work that require them to change. Those, those are the two ingredients, love, discipline, right? Love leads to transformation and that's exactly how Christianity works. That's the pattern we're sent into the world with when we're called to make disciples. That's the pattern we rehearse at the Lord's table, in fact. That's, what it, that's, that's our call to love. It's not easy, but it's transformational and it's worth it. John, Jesus' youngest disciple, summed it up most distinctly. We love, he said, because he first loved us. We love the way that he loved because he loved us well. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Remember me every time that you eat of it. And he took the wine from the table and shared it with them, saying, this is a new commitment sealed by my blood, that you'll be forgiven of your sins. Remember me every time that you drink of it. And then he gathered his disciples back at his ascension. And he said, go into the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them every one of my commandments. Do you see it? costly love. That's what transforms us. And then we're sent out to lead and guide and love deeply as Jesus has loved us. This is transformational love. It means we can change because he first loved us. So what's happening here? What's next is I'm going to pray for us briefly, and there's going to be a two-minute uh, time of silence. And then we're going to do three uh, things that the church has done in worship uh, ever since really the church began, um, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, that's, that's the newest one in which we remember Christ, but even it recalls that deliverance of the people of God from Israel. This is an old tradition that remembers the grace of God and how the grace of God prepares us to obey and follow God. So this is costly grace. This is Jesus, not just coddling, this is him broken but giving of his entire self to us. So when we come to this table, we receive him by faith and then we're sent out into the world in the power of his grace. After that, we're gonna sing together. This is a great way to get the truths of the gospel stuck in your head um, and to just rehearse them over and over again in a community. 
Um, and after that, we are going to give, which is kind of happening simultaneous to all of it. Back in the back, we have a tablet. Um, you're, there's always like a give and receive component here. You are getting an amazing dinner. Uh, Mother's Day pizza here, which we accidentally aligned with Michaela's deep love for pizza. Um, and, uh, and then we have giving in the back. And hey, uh, I mentioned we need it. We're, uh, we have an AC that's down. That's a bummer. Um, but also we are indeed going into the summer. This is uh, in the summertime here in Tucson is when the giving always goes like this. And if you've been following along with us, you know this has not been our strongest year. So stay consistent, please. It really means a ton to all of us. Um, but now I'm going to pray. And there's a two-minute silent space before worship in the Lord's Supper. And that's time for you just to come before Jesus and just to search your heart and to ask, like, am I loving the way that you've loved me? So engage that question with him. Let him speak to you. Let him show you how to receive his love and how to give it in the world and within the church. So let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the chance to be here with these people. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the complexity of it. It really is um, the, deeper, the deeper you look, the more there is. And we thank you for the wisdom that's there. I pray that we would listen to it, um, guide it, and become people who are full of love and offering grace. Please transform us by the power of your mercy and make us change agents in the lives of others. Our brothers and sisters in church, and our friends who don't know you. Um, as we seek you and, and really look into our hearts, I pray that you'd show us anything you wanna show us. So lead us now as we pray.